We're continuing our series through Genesis uh, and uh, really looking at the, the world that was after the fall, this moral and steadily decline of humanity. We saw those themes, as Brian said, uh, last week when he talked about the event of Cain and Abel and Cain murdering his brother. We're going to see those similar themes being played out, but it's much more public and gritty and dark. We're also going to see how God works and operates in the midst of that world and what that means for us now. So if you please would stand as we hear God's word uh, to us. I am the speaker or the reader. God is the one speaking. That's why we take a moment to stand. It's an honor of the one who has come to us. That is God himself uh, to give us his word. This is Genesis 4, uh, beginning at verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after, his, after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Adah, and the name of the other, Zillah. Adah bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in the tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who played the lyre and the pipe. Zilah also bore Tubal Cain. He was a, f- a forger of instruments, bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Game, Cain, was uh, Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zilah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, the Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again. She bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born. He called his name Enosh. That time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, thank you so much uh, for this day and a time to worship you. A day that you've called us to come into your presence to hear your word over us to sing our praises, to confess our sins. And now, Lord, that as your word goes out, we ask and pray that your spirit would be present and present in our hearts and in our minds to continue to transform us into the image of Jesus, to convict us of sin, convict us of the ways we've forgotten you and what you're doing in our lives and help us and reorient our thinking to worship you and honor you as God and remember and be reminded that you are our savior as well as our king. We ask this, Lord, in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as I was doing this, uh, working on the sermon, I was thinking of a movie called Place Beyond the Pines. And it's an interesting film. It's almost like a commentary on how our, our actions and our sins affect not just ourselves, but it, they have generational consequences. They affect our children. It follows two men, a, a police officer and a criminal. Both have, have committed crimes and sins, and it then follows their sons and how their actions 
are, are weighing their sons down and have affected them uh, negatively. And I thought about that because here we see a, a, the generational effect, not just Cain's sin, but even before that, Adam and Eve's sin. That's so, it's, it's so deep and it, its roots go so deep that it affects you and I, that you and I are inheriting that same sin and guilt, even though it was done thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. And here we see the swift decline of humanity into sin, into deeper sin and greater and more heinous sin. But even in the midst of that, we see also that God is operating, that God hasn't left his throne, that God hasn't forgotten his people and he hasn't forgotten his promises that he made to Eve in Genesis 3.15. We see that God is still king over his creation and no opposing kingdom can overthrow his rule of justice and grace. That God is still king over all his creation and no opposing kingdom can overthrow his rule of justice and grace. That's hard, we need to be reminded of that in a, in a world we live like today, just as, just as like it was the world that we see here, a world full of darkness, of pain, of suffering, of death, our own sin that we're dealing with and the pain that's being inflicted by others. How do we see God operating now and how do we see God operating in this text? We're gonna see two kingdoms that uh, Brian referenced last week, the kingdom of God, the seed of the woman, and the kingdom of darkness, the seed of the serpent, the kingdom of Satan. Three things we're gonna look at is first is a temporary kingdom that all of us dwell in, Christian and non-Christian. Then we're gonna look at the menacing kingdom, that's the kingdom of darkness that we see here, we still see operating in the world. And the third thing is we're gonna look at an everlasting kingdom that's the kingdom of God, the seed of the woman. First, a temporary kingdom. This follows the account where Cain murders Abel and is sent out into the wilderness. And if you remember from last week, God has promised protection over Cain. In his mercy and grace over Cain that he makes an oath and says that no one who wants to avenge Abel can harm you. And if they do, the justice that I will inflict on them will be complete. It's this promise of, 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 of kindness and protection over Cain. So Cain goes out into the world and he creates a city. Now scholars have all kinds of thoughts and ideas about this section, but I think it's safe to say we need to take a moment and talk about the world that you and I live in, both non Christians and non-Christians, and a lot of theologians say that this is a, a kingdom of God's common grace meaning his kindness and grace that he shows all people, whether you're a believer or not. And we see parts of that as Abel is going out into the world. He's, it's not just this act of total rebellion, what he's doing. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about the deep spiritual implications of what Cain represents and his line. But it's safe to talk about the, the, the things and the accomplishments that Abel and his descendants do. Abel builds a city, or excuse me, Cain builds a city. If you remember that the creation mandate, the command that God gave Adam and Eve was to be fruitful and multiply, 
to fill the earth and subdue it. This is Genesis 1:17. That command was still in place, this creation mandate. God was calling all people, everyone created in his, in his image, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. And so it's safe to say that although, yes, we'll talk about the spiritual implications of this, that Cain is still fulfilling that mandate and creating a city. And we see what comes with that as well as, as his line continues that there's, there's production, there's invention of things. In verse 20, we have the domestication of livestock, uh, symbolizing economic prosperity as well as the expansion of territory, you know, the development of, of, of food chain, of, of providing for ourselves, of working, economic prosperity. There's the eventual musical instruments in verse 21. This is the, the uh, a, a focus on art and culture. Ceremonial practice and celebration. The invention of, of tools in verse 22. Industrial production and building, creating, inventing. These are all things that are part of being in God's world of, of, of being in a world of common grace where he shows his kindness to us. He shows his kindness to all people. We'll talk about that in a moment. That's not that God is, is, is gracious, gracious to the point of saving, but he's allowed people, even in the world of, of the curse and of death, to function and live and be prosperous and even bless them at times. And all of us get to participate in that. They're not inherently evil. And you and I get to experience that. We get to provide and work, provide for our families, experience good food, eat and, and listen to, to good music, to, to create, to invent. But these things also, it's, 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 it's good to know. There's, there's good things about the world that we live in that you and I get to participate in, but we also know, we're, we're reminded of the firm reality that the, that world is still under the curse. It's under the curse that God gave Adam and Eve, the curse of death the curse of suffering, the curse of pain, the curse of sin that all of us are experiencing. We also know that this world is temporary. Because it's under that curse, it's coming to an end. There's a deeper spiritual reality that we need to look at. But a lot of times, even as Christians, we can believe and think that the world we live in, the experience we have now, the suffering, the success, our desires, our passions, what we're focused on, those things are eternal. The things of this world are everlasting. And we can make our decisions based on that rather than thinking of what's coming after this. What's the world that God has promised us? What's the kingdom that God has promised us? It's not here and now in that what we experience in the suffering and pain and difficulty and challenge and even our own sin is not eternal. It's temporary. Within this temporary kingdom that all of us live in, there's a more menacing one, one that is, that is fundamentally against God. And this is getting into our second point, the menacing kingdom. The kingdom of the serpent, the seed of the serpent, the kingdom of Satan. Dwelling within this city that Cain makes and in the line that Cain has 
is a deeper, darker spiritual kingdom that he represents. Brian talked about this last week, that Cain and Abel represented those two kingdoms, the kingdom of God, Abel, honoring the Lord, following him, honoring his will, worshiping him under his grace and mercy. And the kingdom of Satan, self-absorption, self-worship, putting oneself before someone else and dominating over that person. And we see that playing out even more in this line. First, we see Cain naming the city. He calls it by the name of, of, of his son Enoch. It's not, I mean, it's not as though he's just, I love my son and I want to name the city after him. There's a deeper reality going on here that Cain is trying to make a, an everlasting name for himself and a dynasty and a, and a permanent kingdom. He's putting deep value in what he's made. But even more than that, even more than Cain himself, we've seen all of that in what he's done. And, and something to note here, we don't see any sign of repentance, any sign of faith in this line, any sign of knowing and, and honoring God for who he is. And we see that played and, 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 and focused on in one person that is just the epitome of the darkness of this kingdom, and that's Lamech. This is a man who represents one who is totally self-absorbed. He's totally focused on himself. He has no regard for other people. And his lust for power is, is just so apparent. First thing we see in this is that Lamech takes on two wives. This is the first sign of polygamy after uh, the fall. You remember what God had promised in the, the, the created order that God had set in place, one man and one woman, the two becoming one flesh. The Mecca's totally breaking that, has no regard for it, and is just taking wives for himself, objectifying women, using them for his own personal pleasure and status. And even in their names, Adah is one of his wives, her name means jewel. And zila means uh, melody or song. Scholars say this kind of symbolizes just the materialism of uh, Lamech and his desire for status and just using these women for his own personal gain. But even greater than that, and the, the, the stark reality of the darkness in Lamech and what he represents is in his song. Scholars say that verses 23 through 24 is the first poem after the fall. And it's, it, it's amazing as you, as you break it down, just the, the nature of what's coming out of, of Lamech. It's this total self-absorption and self-worship. He sings about and, and, and writes about killing a man for striking him. Really, it's, it's, there's no indication that this action is under the oath that God made, meaning, as we remember, that God promised Cain that he would send justice on those who took vengeance on Abel. There's no indication that's going on. All Lamech is doing is he's, he's taking justice in his own hands and redefining it and inflicting full punishment and dominion on anyone who gets in his way. He kills a man and he celebrates it. And probably the most heinous part of this song is in 
the last verse of 24, it says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, the Lamech's is 77-fold. What he's doing is he's taking that command. That's, this is the only reference to what God has done, but it's not in a way of honor and worship of God. What he's doing is he's taking the oath that God made to Cain, and he's throwing it out. And he's saying, I've got something better. I'm going to just ratchet it up. And no longer is it sevenfold, which if you've been with us for a while, you know the number seven is an important number and often used in Scripture to represent completeness and perfection. So God promising Cain sevenfold what he's saying that I will, that I will bring justice fully over and for you if someone takes vengeance on Abel. What Lamech is saying is I have something better than that, 77-fold, just beyond what you can even think of. That's the amount of rage and justice and dominion that I will take on anyone who gets in my way. He is a narcissist, self-absorbed, power-hungry. No acknowledgement of God. And think about this. This is also after, coming after understanding what Cain had done, understanding the injustice of Cain murdering an innocent man. There's no regard for this. There's no repentance. The injustice continues to stack up. He is unhinged and he's celebrating it. That's another thing. Not only is there no regard for his sin and injustice, but he sings about it. He's gloating, he's boasting about it. Using his wives just as listeners. Listen to me as I boast of my sin. Celebrating what he's done. Trying to take full dominion. And scholars wonder that this might not just be an act of one man against another, but also an act of war, a a battle between two groups. This might not just be a murder of a single individual, but Lamech is is talking about a, a, a battle that he has won, military dominance. And the tools that are talked about in verse 22, the tools of iron and bronze, are not just tools of, of industry, but are weapons. These are the the, the weapons that have been made. So we see a a sense of of military dominance. The Mech has all the marks of an ancient Near Eastern king, of taking on multiple wives, of displaying military dominance and power and gloating and celebrating victory. These were the marks of many ancient Near Eastern kings at that time, but he's not called a king. We don't have any mentionings of kings. In fact, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, kings don't come until much, much later. But still, the readers would have looked at this and, 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 and seen that this man is, is modeling that sense of, of tyrannical kingship, of trying to take full dominance over everyone. This is the heart of the kingdom of darkness, self-absorption. Brian talked about this last week, self-worship putting oneself before others. It's what Adam and Eve did when they sinned. They took their desires, they knew what they wanted, and knew what God wanted for them, and tried to thwart God's rule for them and over them, and tried to make decisions for themselves, thinking that they knew better, that they had their best interests in mind. 
It's the nature of sin, it's the nature of darkness, it's the nature of this kingdom is self-worship to the point of trying to thwart and throw God off of his throne. And that's what Lamech is doing. He's beating his chest and gloating over his sin, thinking himself to be God. Now, before we move on from this, we need to remember and and know, we're going to look at the injustice of this. We also need to remember and know that as self-absorption and self-worship is really at the heart of sin, that all of us are guilty of that, that we can be like Lamech. We're just better at hiding it. We can try to take dominion and power in whatever sphere and circle that looks like for us, whether that's in our marriage, trying to dominate over our spouse, how we argue with them, trying to seek uh, our own opinion and, and, and what we think is right over what they are saying or doing rather than serving them. We can do this in our parenting and seeing our kids as just little versions of ourselves and trying to create them in a way that makes us look good, makes our parenting admired by others. We do this in our careers, trying to, to, to seek for worldly success and, and financial gain and status in our jobs, competing with other people. We do this in our public image, seeing ourselves as, as better than the next person, wanting people to admire us, praise us, affirm us, whatever. We can do this in our objectification of other people, men, women, seeing them as objects, things that can give us pleasure. We do this in judging others for their sin, for their uh, skin color, for their socioeconomic status, for the political allegiance. At the heart of our sin is a desire to put ourselves first. It's self-absorption, it's self-worship. We see that in full display with Lamech, but let's not forget that how you and I can commit these same kinds and, and, and the, the heart of what is behind Lamech is in all of us. And then there's the question of God's justice and promise in this. I mean, think about this. As we look through the story and we're, we're hearing about these accounts, Cain is murdered unjustly or excuse me, Abel is murdered unjustly. In Cain's line, there's just further injustice to the point where it's celebrated, to the point where it's out in the open. Lamech isn't even hiding it. He's just displaying in the open and he's singing about it. It's how dark the world had become. So the inevitable question is, is what about God's justice? What about God's promise? God had promised Eve that he would send the seed of the woman, that he would send a deliverer through her line who would come and save and rid the world of this curse. What about that promise? It seems like the kingdom of Satan is alive and well. And where is God in all of this? There's no acknowledgement of God in this part. There's no acknowledgement about who God is or what he's done. Injustice is unhinged. Where is the promise of God? Where is God in all of this and how is he going to answer his promises? And 
Friends, you and I can find in that us, ourselves in that place as we see the world falling apart. As we ourselves experience the hurt and injustice of others, offended by others, whether it's our spouse, our friends, whether it's just looking at the news and seeing just the world falling apart around us. And we wonder and think, you know, where is God in all of this? Where is God's promise of deliverance, of peace, of everlasting life? Everything I experience in the world, everything I feel just seems so different to what God has promised me. Where is the justice of God? Those are legitimate questions. As we look at the sin and suffering in the world, it just leads us to ask, when is this gonna end? When is this gonna end? There's an everlasting kingdom that we see here. That God's rule and authority has not been thwarted, no matter how dark and bleak it looks. God hasn't left his throne. That God hasn't forgotten his promise. This is actually all within God's plan. That Satan isn't trying to take the back door and thwart God's plan. This is all within the scheme of what God has for his people. And we see God answering this in the end of this text. In verse 25, it goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. So as Cain's line has been described, Lamech's song is the last thing we hear about that line. And as if we're left hanging, the author comes back and he says, Adam knew his wife again and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. There's some debate about what the word Seth means, but it's safe to say that how Eve describes it is, is the meaning of Seth. In fact, the word for appointed, where it says, God has appointed for me another offspring, that word is, is, is the verb that sounds similar to the Hebrew word for Seth. So what Eve is saying is that in naming uh, her son Seth, what she's saying is that she's, she's believing that this is the one God has set apart, that God has chosen in, to answer his promise to her, that this is the one who's gonna bring about the seed of the woman. This is the one that God is going to use to answer his promise. She might not have known what that looked like. She may have herself believed that Seth himself was gonna be the deliverer. But what's important here is she had faith and she believed in what God had promised. She didn't give up. After her son was murdered and killed, she still had faith believing in what God had promised her. And it's true that if you continue to read the scriptures, as this genealogy is described further and further and time goes on, that God continues to keep that promise and that that line is preserved and that Jesus himself, who is the true king, who is the seed that's promised here, who's the one that's going to come and deliver and has come to deliver us, that that's the one that he's talking, that God is talking about here in Genesis 3. And it's through Seth that that king would come. That king would come and take on the, the offense and the, the justice that you and I deserve, the punishment that you and I deserve for our sin, to rescue us from this world of darkness, to forgive us of everything that you and I have done. 
He's our Savior. But He's also our King. He's the one who's triumphed over Satan. In His death and resurrection, Jesus crushed the head of the serpent. He proclaimed His victory over Satan and is sitting in heaven now, ruling and reigning, and has promised us that one day He'll come and rid this world of sin and death and pronounce final and full victory over sin and Satan and will bring us into a new kingdom, a new world full of life and everlasting joy and peace and gladness and happiness, rejoicing and celebrating no evil, no sin, no darkness, no Satan. That's the world that God has promised and is represented here in the birth of Seth, that God is going to keep his promise, that God hasn't forgotten his people, that God's grace is still for them, that nothing can thwart the plan of God, that nothing can thwart his rule. Now that begs the inevitable question that we ask ourselves is how do we know what kingdom we belong to? Because there's no middle ground here. There's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. And scripture is very clear what is required and needed to be within the kingdom of God. And it's not by your, your, your family history, it's not by what you've done, whether you're a member of a church or not, whether you've been baptized, whatever you do, it's solely by the work of someone else for you. It's solely by the work of someone else who saved and came to save and forgive you of your sin. Because you and I can't do that. You and I can't pay for the sins that we've committed. Whatever that looks like, whatever we've committed, whatever our life has looked like, you and I can't even come close to paying for that. But God has promised to pay for that and has paid for that for us through Jesus. And if you're here and you don't believe in Jesus, we're glad you're here. Praise God, we ask that you still come. But if you don't believe in Jesus, scripture is clear about where you stand before God. And you actually dwell in the, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, and that God is calling you to come. God is calling you to come and believe in his promise of salvation for you to believe in his promise of deliverance from this kingdom of darkness that's for you and the forgiveness that's for you. But if you are a believer, but if you do believe in this, God's promise is sure and nothing you can do can change that. The victory that God has sealed for you and the forgiveness that you have because of Jesus is true and nothing can change that. That you are welcomed in the presence of God, that you are citizens of his kingdom. That means a couple of things for us that we see in this text. What is the nature of us being God's people? First and foremost is that we change our self-worship. We orient our self-worship to God-worship. We continue to rid our idols and the tendencies and ways which you and I put ourselves first and come under the authority and rule of God, being reminded of who he is, being reminded of his goodness, being reminded of his grace, but also bringing our will under his, allowing him to guide us, allowing him to lead us through this life. We see this at the end of this text that it says at the time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. 
It's this picture of the worship of God, of people looking to God for help and for grace and guidance. It's the nature of God's people looking to Him, worshiping Him, following Him. And that's a lifelong practice, friends. That's what sanctification is, is continuing to rid ourselves of the sin and, and just darkness that is in our hearts and allow the Spirit to transform us in the image of Jesus. What He promises to do, which God is working in and through us to point these things out, to show us in ways which you and I can grow and serve one another rather than dominate. Love each other and extend the grace as uh, Ryan was talking about rather than withholding it. But that also means that we live as nomads here. That we live in a place that's not our home. That the world we live in now, with all of its good things, and there's so many good things that we can celebrate. There's so many things that we can enjoy here. But it's temporary. In fact, Scripture throughout in Old and New Testament talks about how the people of God are exiles. They're traveling. If you notice, if you look throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, there's a sense where there's just, people are just moving and wandering. And that's intentional. In fact, Peter talks about this in his address to the, the uh, Christians in his letter in 1 Peter. He calls them exiles. We're nomads. We don't belong here. This isn't our home. We have a greater inheritance a greater future that is just far greater than anything we can experience in this life. That's what God has promised us. Our allegiance is to Him before it is to our nation, to our political ideology, to our family. We belong to Him. And that comes being reminded of how our home is not here. We hold on to the blessing God has given us. We enjoy them. We praise Him for it. But we also understand that even the things we experience in this life pales in comparison to the promise and the riches of His grace and blessing that He has for us when He comes again. And being reminded in the midst of the pain and struggle of this life, in the midst of the injustice that you and I experience, in the midst of the hardship of this life, that God is coming to rescue us. And that date is set. Nothing is gonna change that. That God is coming to deliver us and bring full and final justice on evil and to vindicate us from what we experience and the hardship and suffering and tragedy that you and I experience and the hurt that you and I experience. That God is coming to rescue us. So remember, friends, as you go out, as you experience the difficulty and trials and challenges of this life, that God is still king over all his creation, and no opposing kingdom can overthrow his rule of justice and grace. Amen.